0: Choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You
1: got speed, John Glenn.
0: Roger Zero G and I feel fine.
1: Might be okay,
0: I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be
1: the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff, off. We have a liftoff, off. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Lift
2: off on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man,
0: one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 304 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now... Apollo 14, Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr., Part 4.
1: I think, first of all, you have to be there for the right reason. You have to be there not for the fame and glory and recognition and being a page in a history book. But you have to believe there because you believe your talent and ability can be applied effectively to operation of a spacecraft. Whether you're an astronomer or a life scientist, a geophysicist, or a pilot, You've got to be there because you believe you're good and you in your field and you can contribute, not because you, you're going to get a lot of fame and whatever when you get back. So that, that motive has to be there to start with. And then you have to be a fairly dedicated, objective individual saying, okay, it is going to be dangerous, uh, and I'm going to spend my time worrying about what I do and practicing what I do if things go wrong. And in doing that, you take that initial attitude of believing you can do it, and you build a lot of confidence because, particularly in the simulators, if you respond to two or three horrible emergencies during the course of a morning, um, and do that day in and day out for weeks and months, it's a tremendous confidence builder. Uh, some people could probably say it's brainwashing uh, in its best form. but. There's a total, total confidence at the time of launch because of the initial attitude and because of the the training philosophies coping with contingencies.
0: That was Alan Shepard on what it takes to be an astronaut. Continuing with the biography, the failure of Apollo 13 delayed Apollo 14 until 1971 so that modifications could be made to the spacecraft. This delay allowed Shepard and his crew some more time to train.
1: Because now you had picked your team, and you would sweat out Apollo 13, and you were ready to fly. Must have been a big moment when you were ready, waiting for takeoff. Well, I think that, uh, as in retrospect, uh, the obvious advantage here was that Apollo 13 gave us more time to train, no question about it. Not that we would not have had enough, but it gave us a little higher level of comfort uh, with that extra training time. I think obviously the changes to the spacecraft were good ones, not only the changes which related directly to the explosion, but others that were made as well.
0: The target of the Apollo 14 mission was changed to the Framaro Formation, the intended destination of Apollo 13. On January 31, 1971, Shepard began his second spaceflight as commander of Apollo 14, lifting off from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Shepard described his mood at liftoff as confident.
1: Uh, there was a lot of confidence, as I said uh as I said, we I picked a couple of bright guys that go along with me, and uh, there was really a lot of confidence. Gene Cernan, of course, was uh, my backup. It's a funny story about Cernan. We were at the point, I think we were approximately four or five days away from from liftoff, scheduled liftoff, we were all in quarantine, of course, at the cave. And that time we had to do 21 days before, 21 days after routine, because of the bug stuff. And uh, Cernan was out early in the morning, flying a helicopter, because we all, the commanders, used helicopters to train. And you know the last few hundred feet of the of the landing. We were having breakfast, and we knew Gene was out flying the helicopter. And all of a sudden, the door opens, and in walks Cernan. He is absolutely covered with soot. He's got scars on his face. We said, Cernan, what happened? He had been flying the helicopter over the river, which was absolutely calm, and early in the morning, like a mirror, And he had been distracted by something or other because he was looking at the land instead of the water. (laughs) And he flew that helicopter right into the water, nosed over, blades all over the place, tail rotor blades all over the place, fire because the tanks, the gas tanks, or saddle tanks on on that dinky little chopper, they split and there was fuel all over the place. Cernan is going down like this, and of course, being a good Navy-trained pilot, he knew how to cope with uh, you know being underwater, so he got out, and he swam to the top, and realized he was in fire, so he splashed around like this, and took a big, deep breath, and swam a while, and came up, and splashed around some more, and swam a while. Finally got out of the smoke and flames and all that stuff, <laughs> somebody... Somebody had seen the crash, obviously, and of course the Banana River, you know, is not that big a deal. But he came on the shore, came out, and there he was, and just totally bedraggled. So he looks at me as my backup pilot and said, Okay, Shepard, you win. You get to go.
0: <laughs> but Apollo 14 had its own troubles. It took six attempts before the command module, Kitty Hawk, managed to dock with the lunar module, Antares.
1: We had a couple of cliffhangers on Apollo 14. In the first place, we tried to dock with a lunar module. And that didn't work. So, you know, it could have been the end of the deal, but we finally got that organized.
0: Then one of Antares' batteries began to act up. And just before the crew began to land on the moon, an abort signal sounded in their
1: spacecraft. A uh, problem with the, uh, something floating around in the abort switch, which... Closed, made as if it, we were pushing the abort switch Closed, but all these were taken care of. Uh, now we're on the way down, flying up on our backs like this, with the engine pointing that way, slowing down, getting gradually more steeper and more steeper. Uh, we had a ruling that the computer had to be updated by the landing radar reason being is that while you're on your back obviously you can't see the ground, you can't see the mountains, you can't see the rocks or anything. So we had a rule that said if the landing radar is not updating the computer by the time that you're down at a level of about 13,000 feet then you have to abort. You have to get out of there. Well the landing radar wasn't working and so They called us up and said, your landing radar is not working. We said, thank you very much. We were aware of that. Uh, And then a little bit further on, and they said, you know what the ground rule is about uh, aborting if you're not at 13,000 feet? Well, yeah, we knew that. Uh, Finally, some bright young man over in the corner said, hey, the landing radar is working, but it's locked up on infinity. Have them pull a switch, reset it, see if it works. So we pulled the circuit breaker, put it back in, and sure enough, the landing radar came in. Shortly after that, we got cleared to land, and it's sort of a man, that was close kind of routine. As soon as we pitched over, there it was beautiful Promorrow, just the way I had seen it hundreds of times in the, from the scale model. Came on down, made a very, uh, very soft landing. As a matter of fact, soft enough so that even though we landed in a slight Crater like this, the uphill leg didn't didn't uh, uh, crush like it's supposed to. We had crushable uh, material on the landing, so in, you know instead of slight uh, right wing down, perfect landing. Shutting off the switches and Ed Mitchell turned to me and said, "Alan, what were you going to do if the landing radar had not been working by thirteen thousand feet?" I looked at him and I said, "Ed, you'll never know." I was. Sure. I would have gone down. Of course. Oh yeah. That's the Not have come that far. Well, you see, Ed, for example, had not been in a simulator landing simulator at all. It was my job to land, and I'd done hundreds of these things. I knew that if I could see the surface, man, I could get down. May not, maybe not exactly where we were supposed to, but I could get down close to it. So. And so you would have made the landing under any circumstances. You'd have busted the mission rules. I would have at least at least been able to take a visual look. I would have pitched over and taken a visual look and then made a decision. Even with
0: all the problems, Shepard piloted the lunar module Antares to the most accurate landing of the entire Apollo program. It was the United States' third successful lunar landing, and Shepard became the fifth and, at the age of 47, the oldest man to walk on the moon and the only one of the Mercury-7 astronauts to do so. Here's Shepard describing his experience of walking on the moon.
1: Of course, the first feeling was one of a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment, I guess, if you will. tremendous sense of realizing that, hey, not too long ago I was grounded. Now I'm on the moon. There was that sense of, of self-satisfaction, I think, immediately, but then that went away because we had a lot of work to do. But I'll never forget that moment. Another moment which I will never forget is after Ed had followed me down and we had set out some of our equipment, taken the emergency samples. We had a few moments to look around To look up in the black sky, totally black sky, even though the sun is shining on the surface. It's not reflected. There's no diffusion, no reflection. Totally black sky and seeing another planet, planet Earth. Now, planet Earth is only four times as large as the moon. So you can really still put your thumb and your forefinger around it. At that distance so it makes it look beautiful it makes it look lonely it makes it look fragile you think to yourself just imagine the millions of people that are living on that planet and don't realize how fragile it is I think this is a feeling everyone has had, and expressed it in one fashion or another. But that was an overwhelming feeling, and seeing the beauty of the planet on the one hand, but the fragility of it on the other.
0: Shepard and Mitchell proved that humans could carry out hard physical work on the moon. On the first day, they worked for more than four hours setting up scientific experiments and collecting 96 pounds of moon rocks. The next day, they tried to climb to the rim of Cone Crater, 400 feet high, but that was a little tough. After spending nine and a half hours on the moon, the two astronauts prepared to enter Antares for liftoff. But Shepard stopped to do something that would later become very controversial. He suddenly produced a couple of golf balls and a makeshift club he had constructed from a lunar sample scoop handle and the head of a Wilson 6-iron.
1: We had a ball up there uh, because everything was essentially the way we had envisioned it. Everything was essentially the way uh, we had practiced for it. Uh, we laughed and giggled and bounced around and I think almost everybody did. The only problem uh, that the old man had was uh, we didn't have that fancy little car, you know. The first three flights had to, had to walk with a little golf cart. And uh, they had assigned us a landing area close to a fairly large crater about a mile away, which had a, about a 15-degree slope as you approach the top of it. And it was sort of like trying to climb a sand dune in the, in the desert, I guess. You take one step and your foot slips back. And so it really got physically to be difficult uh, for us Finally, we just picked up the golf cart and, and carried it up the hill rather than try to drag it over the rocks. Uh, so that was a little bit of a surprise. Also, um, we had a difficulty in defining the rim of the crater to which we were supposed to, to, to uh, walk, uh, and I think the, the problem there was that because of the Shadows it appeared in the photographs to be a very sharp rim wherein as a matter of fact over millions of billions of years of Meteorites it was fairly well-rounded so we didn't actually recognize it as being a precipitous type of Although we were there at the rim. uh, We collected samples from the ejected boulders We really didn't realize that we were specifically right there at it but outside of that we had uh, We got everything accomplished Uh, all the samples. Obviously of course we landed closer than any of the other five landings and we brought back the oldest rocks, you know how those things are. Uh, I was really very pleased uh, and uh, at the end of the uh, of the second mission I I uh, played with a little uh, device that I had received clearance to play with before and that was a makeshift golf club. Whacked a couple of golf balls up there. All of us wanted to try to think of something which would interest perhaps young people primarily in the in the difference in the gravity. The gravity is only one-sixth. Uh, the lack of atmosphere, there's absolutely a total vacuum up there. And some of the other guys, the clever guys before us had dropped the little lead ball and the feather and watched them slowly proceed at exactly the same rate to the surface. And so some imagination had been used before uh, and I, being a golfer, thought, well, now, if I could just get a club up there and get it going through the ball at the same speed that it was gonna go six times as far as it should have gone here on the Earth. So I set We up, we designed a club head to fit on a handle which we had up there to scoop up dust samples with, and I cleared it with the, uh, with the powers that be. We practiced in a spacesuit before we went to be sure there were no safety uh, implications. And the deal I made in um, in the final analysis with the boss was that if things were kind of messed up on the surface, uh, then I wouldn't play with it because obviously we'd be accused of being too frivolous. But uh, if things had gone well, which they did, then the last thing I was going to do before climbing up the ladder to come home was to whack these two golf balls. Which I did, and I folded up the, the uh, collapsible golf club and uh, brought it back with me. The golf balls are still up there. Perhaps uh, the youngsters of today will go up and play golf with them sometime 25 or 30 years from now.
0: Despite the thick gloves and stiff space suit, which forced him to swing the club with one hand, Shepard struck two golf balls, driving the second, as he jokingly put it, miles and miles and miles. Critics of the moon program often zeroed in on the golf demonstration to point out that going to the moon just to play golf was wrong when there were so many problems on Earth. When Shepard returned to Earth, he was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal and the Navy Distinguished Service Medal. Following Apollo 14, Shepard returned to his position as Chief of the Astronaut Office in June 1971. In July 1971, President Richard Nixon appointed him as a delegate to the 26th United Nations General Assembly, a position in which he served from September to December of 1971. He was promoted to Rear Admiral by Nixon on August 26, 1971, the first astronaut to reach the rank, although McDivitt had previously been promoted to Brigadier General in the Air Force. Shepard retired from both NASA and the Navy on July 31, 1974.
1: Only scheduled missions uh, were the Skylab missions. The crews were already assigned. Uh, the Soviet joint right, mission with the Soviets, crews were already assigned. Including your friend. So James it's going to be a long time. He finally got a shot at it, didn't he? Boy, we were so pleased. We were so pleased. Uh, bless his heart.
0: After Apollo 14, Shepard began to spend more time with his wife Louise and started taking her with him on trips to the Paris Air Show every other year and to Asia. Louise heard rumors of his affairs. The publication of Tom Wolfe's 1979 book The Right Stuff made them public knowledge, but she never confronted him about it, nor did she ever contemplate leaving him. After his retirement, Shepard was devoted to his children. Frequently, Julie, Laura, and Alice were the only astronaut children at NASA events. He taught them to ski and took them skiing in Colorado. He once rented a small plane to fly them and their friends from Texas to a summer camp in Maine. He doted on his six grandchildren as well. After Shepard left NASA, He served on the boards of many corporations. He also served as president of his umbrella company for several business enterprises. He made a fortune in banking and real estate. He was a fellow of the American Astronautical Society and the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, a member of Rotary Kiwanis, the Mayflower Society, the Order of Cincinnati, and the American Fighter Aces, an honorary member of the Board of Directors for the Houston School for Deaf Children and a director of the National Space Institute and the Los Angeles Ear Research Institute. In 1984, along with the other surviving Mercury astronauts and Betty Grissom, Shepard founded the Mercury 7 Foundation, which raised money to provide college scholarships to science and engineering students. It was renamed the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation in 1995. Shepard was elected as first president and chairman, positions he held until October 1997 when he was succeeded by former astronaut Jim Lovell. In 1994, Shepard published a book with two journalists, Jay Barbary and Howard Benedict, called Moonshot, The Inside Story of America's Race to the Moon. Fellow Mercury astronaut, Deke Slayton, is also named as an author. The book was turned into a TV miniseries in 1994. In 1996, Shepard was diagnosed with leukemia and died from complications of the disease in Pebble Beach, California, on July 21, 1998. Shepard's widow, Louise, resolved to cremate his remains and scatter the ashes, but she died from a heart attack on August 25, 1998 at 5 o'clock p.m., the time at which he had always called her. They had been married for 53 years. The family decided to cremate them both, and their ashes were scattered together by a Navy helicopter over Stillwater Cove in front of their Pebble Beach home. Shepard received many awards and honors during his life, I will name just a few. The Congressional Space Medal of Honor in 1978, the Golden Plate Award in 1981, the Langley Gold Medal in 1964, the John J. Montgomery Award in 1963, the Cabot Award, the Collier Trophy, and the City of New York Gold Medal for 1971. He was awarded honorary degrees of Master of Arts from Dartmouth College, Doctor of Science from Miami University, Doctorate of Humanities from Franklin Pierce College. He was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 1977, the International Space Hall of Fame in 1981, and the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1990. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 304 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 14, Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr., Part 4. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue nor do we have a government grant or a corporate endowment. We are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To do so, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate, as well as being entered in the weekly giveaway. I moved this funding request up in the schedule just a bit here because we're running into quite a dry spell, as I will get into later. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 135 episodes are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. All right, in my afterthoughts today, I thought we would uh, finish up reading the favorite episode emails that began on episode 300 for our celebration of 300 episodes. Now, we are going to read these in episode order. There are about nine emails left, and most of these are on the Apollo 13 series. I'm going to read excerpts from the first five, and Mrs. SRH will read the rest. First, we have Francis M. from Australia. I'd have to say my favorite episode is 265. That is Apollo 13 Translunar Coast. All your episodes are technically amazing. You pack so much information into each episode, yet it's easy to understand. And remember, however, what you achieved in episode 265 and the following episodes where you describe what both the crew and mission control are going through As the events unfold, I think it was incredible. I speak a lot about this podcast with my dad, and he's of the same opinion. However, the Agena missions have a soft spot in his heart. Thank you very much, Francis. We certainly do appreciate that a whole lot. Now we have uh, Brent M., and he is from Washington State, and he says his favorite single episode was the... Houston, we've had a problem episode. That was 266. And he has a nice compliment here. It says, I am the master at weaving the archival sound record with your narrative. (laughs) Thank you, Brent. I appreciate that very much. All right. Now, this is James C. from Australia Wrote. It's definitely hard to pick one episode. There are a lot of earlier ones, such as the Saturn development and John Glenn's flight, which are right up there as standalone episodes. I think my favorite single one is episode 266, Houston, We've Had a Problem. The delivery of that episode really sticks with me, with the stripping it back and telling how it was. I've listened to the full mission control loop for the accident on YouTube. All four parts, and how calm everyone was, is still amazing. Well, thank you very much, James. And we have Mike L. from France, and he says his favorite episode is the recent one narrated by Mrs. SRH, episode 282, Apollo 13, Battery number 2. The show is well-researched, always interesting, and frequently exciting. Keep up the good work. You're doing a great job. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, now we have Don E. from Buffalo, New York. There are so many great episodes that it was difficult to choose just one. I've learned so many things on my drives to and from work. I learned so much about the Soviet space program and that part of the history is so amazing. And the chatter among all the flight controllers for the Apollo 13 episodes. Wow. But the episode that stands out the most is 282, for which Mrs. SRH (laughs) did the talking that time you were sick. Don't get me wrong. I look forward to hearing your North Carolinian accent each week, but the fact that your sweetheart filled in without a hitch shows that the two of you are a close couple who take care of each other. That warmed my heart. Well, thank you, Don. We, We appreciate that. That is so nice. Mrs. S.R.H. really appreciates that when she when she gets some fan mail like that. She really likes that. And I appreciate it, too. Now, here's Mrs. S.R.H. with the final four favorite episode emails.
2: Hello, Mrs. S.R.H. here to share a few favorites with you. David D. wrote, It's hard to pick my favorite episode, but one from recent memory stands out. I'm thinking of episode number 283, encouragement from the president. This is Apollo 13. I love your Nixon impersonation and bonus points for Mrs. SRH as Marilyn Lovell. Thanks, David. Julie G. wrote, my favorite episode is Space Rocket History number 290, Apollo 13, Welcome Home. So emotional. Loved it. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much, Julie. Steve C. from Georgia wrote, My favorite episode is number 290, Apollo 13 Welcome Home. The investigation into the accident is fascinating. All the seemingly minor events and minor spacecraft parts that all came together to create a near disaster. The dropped oxygen tank, the 28-volt thermostat, the 65-volt launch pad power supply, and the really interesting one, the temperature gauge that pegged at 80 degrees, the same temperature the thermostat was supposed to open. The commission did an outstanding job uncovering all this, and as you mentioned, when they tested their hypothesis with actual components, then the tank burst just as it did on Apollo 13. Well done on this episode, and adding the drawing of the oxygen tank showing the internal parts was very helpful. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate that. And lastly, one of our youngest listeners, Milo from California, said, My favorite episode of the podcast is number 298, Apollo 14 Crew Selection, because I like it when you tell about when Alan's secretary hangs a painting on Alan's office door to warn people wanting to talk with him what mood he was in. Thanks, Milo. I thought that was pretty interesting, too.
0: We were pleased to receive one contribution over the past a week to support the podcast. That's one new contribution and we really appreciate it. Andreas S. from the UK donated at the Soyuz level. It was looking pretty serious there and uh, we certainly do appreciate you coming through. We've had a, a little low spot in uh, support over the past couple episodes and that's why I moved the funding request up higher in the script of the podcast. Anyway, We are still at 222 Patreon donors, and our overall total has reached 347, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 347 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. And here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly giveaway.
2: I am happy to announce the winner of the Space Rocket History logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Steve Peters. Steve Peters, if you would email us, mike at com and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 347 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019.
0: Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 305 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.